It's great to be together. We are, we are in 1 Samuel, so go ahead and flip there. While you're turning there, just a couple things to remind you about. Next week is Easter. And so we'll either look at an Easter text or we'll look at Saul and the Witch of Indoor. Uh, I kind of lean towards Saul and the Witch of Indoor. Uh, it does have a resurrection type theme in it. A little bit different, but we'll see if uh, Michelle thinks that's a good idea. Uh, the, the young people, the young kids, preteens and teens in the back, next week will be performing for us as well. I've heard they have a grand production. Um, they don't look super confident. There's some head shaking. It's not grand. It is grand? No. They're a little bit nervous. I'm sure they'll pull it out. It'll be awesome. Uh, appreciate their work on, on that. Uh, we will also, next Sunday, uh, the collection we take up at church will go towards disciples in Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Uh, last year, we took up a collection, I think in May, uh, specifically for the disciples in Fiji. As many of you know, with COVID, uh, their entire economy is built on tourism. Uh, and their uh, international airport in Fiji has been closed since March of 2020. Uh, a vast majority of the church has lost all meaningful employment. Uh, and so we took up a collection last May uh, in the churches in Australia. Uh, our sister churches, we did an awesome job. I think we collected fifty dollars to $60,000. Uh, which has gone a long way to basically sustain the church uh, over the last year. Uh, however, the border is still closed, uh, and so they're again in need. So we will be taking up a collection along with church, uh, the churches in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide and, and Queensland uh, next week, uh, primarily for the disciples in Fiji, uh, and to a lesser degree, the disciples in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Papua New Guinea has been extremely hard hit recently in the last month with covid uh, Michelle had a conversation uh, last week with Ashley Hammeter, who, along with Felix, who we've had here speak before, uh, lead the work there in Port Moresby. Uh, and uh, they, they, their, their border has basically been open, and so uh, they're a third world country that has had a lot of fly-in, fly-out labor come and bring uh, COVID, unfortunately, with them, and they don't have the health system to maintain it. Uh, so they have a lot of needs within the church, and they've had, I think, a few deaths as well. Uh, as well. So we're going to take out a collection as well for them. Uh, so you can be thinking about that uh, this, this coming week. Uh, you can give online. Uh, and if you do give online, just give into the, to the general contribution uh, uh, account and maybe just put Easter on there uh, in the reference line so we know that that is going towards uh, the disciples in Fiji and Papua New Guinea. So I appreciate in, in, in advance for your generosity. Uh, we were very generous last time, and, and I know we'll, we'll be able to do the same. Amen. Uh, so let's have a prayer for, for them. Uh, and then we'll look at our text here. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we do thank you. We, we thank you just, you know, obviously how you have sheltered us tremendously. Uh, and we are grateful for that, Father. We pray that we can take, uh, you know, the, the abundance that we have, God, and give to our brothers and sisters in need, Father. Uh, Father, you know, just obviously even as, as Byron and Nick shared, God, the, the, the love within the fellowship is such a uh, hallmark attribute. Of your work among us, God, and we pray, God, you help us, God, help us to uh, to have a love, you know, for, for those brothers and sisters in, in Fiji and Papua New Guinea uh, that we may never see, uh, God, but but we know that in you we are united uh, together with them, Father. And help us, God, help us to, uh, you know, look, look at what we can give and give, you know, not under compulsion, but but you know, really just out of gratitude uh, of being part of your family, God. God, we do pray you look after our brothers and sisters there. God, we do pray that, 
you know, that, that especially for Fiji, God, that their borders can open soon, God, and their economy be restarted, and uh, that you can provide for them in every way, God. Again, we thank you, and we, we do pray that you be with us here as we look at this text, Father, uh, you know, and as we consider, you know, obviously the topic of suffering, God, and, and we look at a quite a dark moment in David's life, God, help, help us to learn uh, lessons, God, uh, here and now, uh, that, that will prepare us for, for the inevitable dark times that will come in life. Uh, again, we, we ask you to be with us. We ask your spirit to move among us, opening up the eyes of our hearts and helping us to see with great clarity what we need to see, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. We'll go ahead and turn over here to, uh, to 1 Samuel. We'll read 26 and 27. Uh, so we will read a bit. Normally when it's a lot to read, I make Michelle come up, but... I probably won't do that today. Unless you want to. You want to? No. All right, let's read. <coughs> First Samuel 26, starting there in verse 1, it says, The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among the hills of Achillah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Zip with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Achillah, facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into camp? With me to Saul. I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp with a spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't, be, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between him. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord, the king? Someone came to destroy you, Lord the King. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die, because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my Lord, the king. And he added, Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what am I, wrong, what am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, 
May they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. I do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you consider my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted, acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointing. As surely as I value your, your life today, so may today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all, all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hands of Saul. The best thing I could do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Kish, son of Maok, king of Goth. David and his men settled in Goth with Kish. Each man had his family with him. David had his two wives, uh, Anonom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be, designed, be assigned to me in one of your country towns that I may live there. Why would your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Malachites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, what did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jehermel, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. Stop right there. This is an interesting text. Right? And we are getting towards the end uh, of, of 1 Samuel here. Uh, and David has been on, a run, on the run for a long time. Right? And he's been through ups and downs. He's had... Uh, moments of darkness before. Uh, he's fled to Achish in the Philistines before. If you remember that story, as he, you know, again, fleeing from Saul, kind of loses hope, uh, ends up in, in Achish's royal uh, kind of, you know, kingly chambers. Uh, and David panics, and what does he do? He pees on the wall, right? And acts like a madman, and Achish kicks him out. Uh, and then David was back, kind of wandering around in the wilderness for, for a number of years. Uh, and, and very faithful, writing some psalms. Many of the mighty men who, who if you're familiar with the scriptures, rally to David in that time. But again, David here uh, is going to plunge into a dark place. And maybe, you know, there are entire books written uh, about this long period of David's life where everything seems to be against him. All right? Everything seems to be opposed to him. You know, if you're looking for a book to read, 
Uh, Alan Redpath writes a great book called The Making of a Man of God, and it looks at, at the life of David and looks at, you know, in many ways, the suffering David, you know, endures during his, you know, decades on the run from Saul. But when you step back and you look at from, from the wider vantage point, all that suffering was about molding and shaping him into the king God wanted him to be. Right? And David's, you know, his story, his life is very much a reminder of this reality. That, that God's school for us is one of suffering. The way God shapes us and molds us and changes us and trains us is not through easy times, it's through hard times. It's not in times where everything seems to go right for us, it's actually in the times of suffering where we're changed the most. You know, and here is a, a period of time where in some sense the, the fires uh, of suffering is cranked up in David's life. All right? uh, and there's two lessons I think we can see in these two chapters here uh, on how to uh, operate in God's school of suffering. Right? The first one is uh, that we have to learn to, to, to don't cite circumstantial events, right? but instead cite scripture. We can't get caught into sign theology, basically. And the second one is we have to learn and remember to don't quit, but instead commit. And so let's look at those two points here in these two chapters, right? Don't cite the circumstantial, cite the scriptures, and don't quit, but instead commit. Amen? So you look here, you know, don't cite the circumstantial, right? This chapter here, 26... Is, is nearly mirrored with chapter 24. All right? maybe, you, maybe you picked that up as we read it. You thought, man, didn't the Ziphites, weren't they snitches before uh, on David? And yes, they were. David was in their territory, and they did the same thing before, went and told Saul. Uh, it's almost a mirror chapter. All right? uh, now, now, in, in, these, in both of these mirror chapters, 24 and 26, you get an occurrence like we see here from, from Abishai in verse 8. Right? Abishai said to David, uh, in our chapter, today God is, has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Right? Abishai sees these events unfold. Right? David is up in the mountain. Saul and his army are hunting for them. Uh, they literally set up camp right at the base of the mountain. Uh, they're all sound asleep. And Abishai and David walk into the camp. And there they, there they are, standing over the guy who's been hunting David at this point for a long, long time. And Abishai looks at that scenario and he says, look, look what God has done. God has brought him right before you, David. You don't even have to do it, I'll do it. I'll take that spear that Saul was chucking at you and I'll put it through him and I'll end this right here and there. Surely God's behind it. Surely God has ordained it. Surely this is his providence at work. Why else would it unfold the way it unfolded? And Abishai looks at that and he, he appeals to David to see that. Now the same thing happens in, in chapter 24, right? Remember chapter 24? I think, I think Jonathan Jono preached on that, right? And that's one of my favorite chapters because it's a good chapter that has a good poo joke in it, right? Saul literally goes into a cave to do a poo. I mean, you don't get any more vulnerable than that, right? You're there taking care of business, and David and his men are hiding in that cave. 
And David's men say the same thing there. David, look what God has provided. Not the poo, right? <laughs> but man, your enemy there, vulnerable. Strike him down. Surely God has given him into your hands. And both times, David will not do it. Both times, David chooses to not take matters literally into his own hands, but instead to show grace. And he shines so bright as he does that. You know, and it is, you know, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if John covered this or not, but there is a side point. A lot of people take David's repetitive declaration of don't raise his hand against an anointed one. A lot of people take that today in modern world uh, to say that you can never challenge your church leader, right? That's rubbish. That's rubbish. Feel free to challenge me, okay? Not right this second, but afterwards. You can grab me and, ha- and you know, get stuck in me if you want, right? But, but, but we got to understand here, I mean, Saul is not like just some random church leader. The prophet Samuel had anointed Saul. Saul is the answer to Israelites' prayers for a king like the other nations. Saul, in many ways, is God's tool to, to shape and mold David, the next king. And so David understands all those events, and therefore he won't raise his hand against That is in no way a, a scripture that can be used to, to justify some ungodly man, uh, you know, basically pushing everyone else away from ever giving him input. Amen? That's a side point on that, right? But, but the main point that I think we've got to see here in this this idea is that, that we can so easily fall into this trap that David's men repeatedly fall into. We can look at events unfold in front of us and draw conclusions about God being favorably disposed towards our actions. When in reality, he's maybe not. And we can look at those things and we can come to very wrong conclusions. And David resists that temptation, right? He resists that, 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 that temptation uh, to look at these signs uh, in a way that would justify him taking vengeance or him having revenge on, on Saul, right? And two times we see him tempted with that and two times we see him choose scriptural principles as his guidance rather than circumstantial evidence or signs of things aligning. And David does shine very bright in this. But the interesting thing here in this text is that David actually ends up doing the very thing that he, he challenges his men for doing. Right? Slightly different, but very much the same. And look at the overall outline here, right? Chapter 24, as we talked about, he has the opportunity. As Saul is taking a poo, David is restrained, and then Saul lives. If you were with us last week, we looked at Nabal the fool, right? And, and Nabal the fool had harshly treated David's kindness uh, with evil, and David and his men were going to slaughter Nabal. Abigail steps up, saves the day, uh, you know, averts the, the, the tragedy, and, and God strikes Nabal down. Then in our chapter that we read today, David again has opportunity against his enemy. He chooses to be restrained. But in many ways, as we'll see in this text, the Bible is trying to show us that perhaps David expected God to deal with Saul at this moment as he had with Nabal. And then God doesn't. He doesn't strike Saul down like Nabal had been struck down. 
God didn't intervene immediately in David's life. God allowed the situation to continue on. And David looked at those events and perhaps saw God's inaction as a rejection of him. As God's maybe disapproval towards him. As God not actually blessing him, not being with him. And then chapter 27 begins with a very ominous tone of David thought to himself. If I stay here, I'm going to be destroyed. And that word destroyed is the same word that's used at the end of 26 when David is talking about Saul. And the two events are connected together. Right? And even the word that's used for God striking down Nabal is the same word that David uses for hopefully, hoping that God would strike down Saul. And perhaps when those events didn't happen as David thought they would. Again, David looking at his life and thinking, you know what, I'm doing the right thing, and surely God's going to bless that right thing by then vindicating me in the moment. And God doesn't. He doesn't strike Saul down. And many times, many times I've seen disciples lose faith and make the same decision that David makes, right? I mean, David's decision is, I'm going to walk away from God's people, and I'm going to go back into the world, because surely God's not happy with me, because God didn't do X. Or God didn't do Y, like I thought he should. And that hope deferred makes our hearts sick. And the text is linking these events to try to help us to see the cause for David's decision there in chapter 27. His decision to think to himself. Instead of praying to God, instead of seeking God's will, instead of you know, getting Jonathan, his friend, to come, instead of listening to Abigail, Instead of having the high priest come and, 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 and help him fix his eyes on God again, David comes to his conclusion based on how he saw events unfolding and thought, you know what? God's turned from me. You know, Martin Luther, the great German theologian, he had a phrase for this. He called these times of suffering the alien work of God. Now, he doesn't mean UFOs, amen? It means alien, foreign. Because Martin Luther, even in his time, understood you know, that, that at many times, Christians endure times of suffering. Christians suffer right alongside the world in, in, in terms of enduring hardships. Though they're living right, trying to honor God, trying to follow Him, the same pitfalls, the same struggles, the same hardships that befall those who don't care about God come upon Christians. And Luther says of his time that Christians at many times look at those things and just like David, they come to this circumstantial conclusion, God must not be happy with them. And Martin Luther draws this distinction to try to help them to understand that, that God, yes, he is sovereign over all things. But God, ultimately, he is for you. We sing this song, right? Over and over, he is for you, he is for you. You know, the scriptures are full of that reality. Reassuring us, you know what? You know, for, for those who love man, who, those who love God, he's, he's with you. He's going to work in everything to bring about good into your life. But at the same time, there are going to be dark times like this. You're going to have times, just like David has. Where life, you're going to be suffering for literally doing the right thing. 
You're going to be suffering for, for, for literally choosing God's ways over the world's ways. And in that moment, the temptation will arise to think that God is not happy. And that's why, that's why Martin Luther began this, you know, to really teach and hammer into to, to his followers this idea that you gotta, we have to learn to see, see suffering as God's alien work. It's not, it's not his normal work. It's not his primary work. But God for sure can even use suffering. Something outside of his nature. He doesn't want to harm you. He doesn't want to hurt you. He doesn't want to crush you. But God can use those things nonetheless, because he's sovereign, to still accomplish his will. And in those moments, we have to make sure that we don't lose hope. That even in those dark times of suffering, even when all the evidence around you makes you think God is opposed to you, that circumstantial conclusion you've come to may actually be the farthest thing from the truth. You may be in a moment just like David's, doing the right thing, and yet suffering enveloping you on every side. But you've got to step back and realize that you know what? He's still there. And he's still at work. Because look a little closer at chapters 27. All right? Chapter 27 is a dark chapter, all right? Chapter 27, maybe you can advance it because it's not advancing on my iPad's going. Right. Chapter 27 is an interesting chapter because God is not mentioned. That's never a good sign in the Bible. God is not mentioned at all. And like I said before, it begins with that ominous note. David thought to himself. David thought to himself. Not, not Jonathan said, hey David, this is probably a good idea. Not the high priest coming to him. Hey, this is God's will. No, no, no. David left to his own thoughts. This is a challenging thing. This is a challenging thing as a disciple. This is a challenging thing just as a human. Not all of your thoughts are true. If you haven't, if you haven't come to grips with that, I hope I'm not shattering you, okay? Not all of your thoughts are correct. In fact, the vast majority of your thoughts are probably actually wrong. And left to ourselves, any of us, we will make stupid choices. And David does. He makes stupid choices. You know, like I said last time, he, he, he went down this road. He ended up peeing on the walls of the king of Akash's, you know, his palace. That's not a good thing. Right? And you think about how chapter 27 unfolds. Chapter 27 unfolds with David thinking to himself, he goes to King Akish, right, of Gath. Again, why does he keep saying Gath? Because he's trying to get us to remember Goliath, whose head David chopped off, and who, in the irony, what does Akish declare David to be? His, his bodyguard, literally in the Hebrew, the protector of his head. See the irony here. The great hero Goliath, whose head David chopped off, their king is now saying, David, hey, you're my bodyguard. You're the protector of my head. This is backwards. This is upside down. And then what is David doing? 
He's living there in the Philistine territory and going out on raiding parties and plundering uh, you know, the, the Amalekites and the Gerizites and the Hittites. Kish calls him in. Hey, what, what have you been up to? Because you're adopting the philosophy of the Philistines, right? Which is raiding people for your own gain. And David, you know, lies to him point blank. Here's where I've been. And he, and he lists a bunch of Israelite territories. This is what happens when you go into the world, right? People who, who, who walk away from God, they don't, they don't understand the steps they're going to go down. People walk away from God and they think, oh, I'm just, you know, just going to have a break from church. I'm not going to go back to being what I was before. I just, just need a break. I need some me time. And, and, and you know what? Inevitably happens. Within weeks, within months, perhaps years, they end up doing things that they're going to regret for the rest of their lives. End up making choices. Planting seeds in their heart. They're going to have severe repercussions in their life. They become filled with regret and self-loathing. All because they turn from God. And David's the same here. David's self-serving decisions in terms of the rating and his blatant deceit are seeds he is planting in his heart that are going to be played out again later on in his life. One day later on when the suffering's removed, David's going to go for the stro- a little stroll in the cool of the day on his roof. And he's going to see a woman, and he's going to take her. And then when confronted about it, what's he going to do? He's going to lie. I mean, what was the genesis, perhaps, of that later event in his life What's the decisions he's making here in the darkness? And the effects and the ramifications aren't going to come on David immediately. But man, they are going to come. And sin always comes out. You can lie like David. You can cover up. You can conceal it in darkness. But man, it always comes out. If you don't know that, if you don't believe it, man, be a disciple for 10 plus years, 20 plus years. And you begin to see that. How God in His grace will expose us. How God in His grace will drag things out into the light. Because it's only in the light that they're going to be dealt with. It's only in the light that those seeds that David is sowing here in the darkness, that they can ultimately be dealt with. But all of these things are planted because David chooses to quit. I mean, really, it's the time. It's the end. He's so close. I mean, spoiler alert, Saul's going to be dead in a matter of chapters. He's so close to the end. He's so close to graduating from God's school of suffering. But in that darkest hour is when he quits. And man, it's going to affect him long term. I encourage you. I I don't know if you're suffering right now. But if you are, if you feel like David, like, my goodness, I'm trying to do the right thing. And it's like, I'm opposed at every step. Don't believe the thought that tells you that God is against you. Instead, step back and think about Hebrews 12. Man, you're undergoing discipline. Well, that is, in fact, proof. 
that you have a godly father who is shaping you and training you. He doesn't want to destroy you, but wants to make you into something amazing. Unfortunately for David, though, he doesn't get that in this moment. And it's a tragedy. Maybe go to the next slide. All right. Right? It's a tragedy because, as you can see here on, on, the, on the slide, this process is the core of the gospel. Right? It's an excerpt from Isaiah 53, right? One of the great Old Testament prophecies regarding the cross and Jesus' resurrection. And as people, you know, as the prophet Isaiah looked forward to the time where the Messiah would come, the suffering servant, and the reality that that suffering servant, that that chosen one of God would come and endure hardship, here's what he says. That people look at him and look at his circumstances and what do they think? They consider him stricken by God. They look at the circumstances of Jesus' life and they think, false prophet, rejected by God, that's why he's suffering. But we know that's not how the story ends. We know that those circumstances maybe can, can, can make you think that's what's happening. But the reality is God had something far greater in store. He had far, something far greater in his mind. And that greater thing is that he was being pierced for our transgressions. So yeah, he was being wounded, but man, that was for our benefit. And that dark period of suffering, it wasn't going to end in suffering he would see the light of day again. And he would rise. And for those that were seeking signs, he repeatedly said, now that's the sign to pay attention to. Three days, and then rises again. That's the gospel pattern of how God works. And it's foolishness in the eyes of the world. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the world look at a situation and look at a life uh, without the lenses of faith. And they look at circumstances and they, they make these conclusions that, you know what, God is opposed to you. He's not real. If he was real and if he was loving, why would he allow that to happen to you? And yes, without the lenses of faith, you can come to that conclusion. But with the lenses of faith, we can look at, 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 at lives like David, David's lives, like David's life. And we can look at, at Jesus and we can see those dark times of suffering, but through the lenses of faith, man, we know God has a greater plan. That God is using those moments of suffering to bring about greater glory. And as, as you leave here today, I encourage you, learn these lessons from God's school of suffering. Don't, don't buy into the, the, the narrow-sighted attempt to find signs to justify our viewpoint is so narrow. It's so nearsighted. Allow Scripture to dictate your choices. Allow that to set in, 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 in before you the path of righteousness. And choose to walk that path no matter the circumstances. I mean, literally, the, the man who walked perfectly with God, the circumstances of his life were by and large negative. I mean, in a matter of years, the, the people all around him decided the best thing to do was to kill him. But look at that pattern. 
And see how God took that suffering and used it to bring about tremendous good. And whatever you're going through in life, God will do the same. But you must cling to Him. You have to choose to continue to walk with Him. Even when you can't see the outcome. Even when you don't know how he's going to take these negative events and bring them about for good. I mean, the biggest book in the, New Te- in the, in the entire Bible on suffering is the book of Job. And the entire structure of the book of Job tries to hammer out into us this reality that, yes, life is full of suffering, but that suffering is not always because you're a sinful person. It might actually be the complete opposite. And you'll have people around you that will point to your suffering just as Job did, and say, hey, you're suffering because you're a sinful rat. I mean, that's Job's religious buddies. But Job clings to God. And of course, the great irony of the book of Job is that we, the reader, can see the bigger picture and see that his suffering is not for any reason, you know, not for some arbitrary reason, but really it's ultimately about God being glorified in his life. But Job never sees that. Job never knows that. And you probably won't either. And that's why it takes faith to commit to God, to not quit, but to commit to Him even in those darkest times. And when we do that, man, God shapes us. He refines us. In the book of James that we studied years ago, right, talks about consider it pure joy when you face trials. Consider it pure joy. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Because it's, it's refining your faith. And ultimately, what is that refining process needs to happen is you have to let it complete its work. Then you'll find mature. But if you quit and if you lose heart and you lose faith, it's not going to be made complete. The process is not going to be finished. If God's a faithful father... And he'll continue to do whatever he needs to do to teach you the lessons that we need to learn. So the challenge for us is to learn to walk according to his word. Not giving up, but clinging ever so closely to him until the day we see him. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll sing together. Our Father, we, you know, we, we do thank you for this you know, dark point in David's life, God. Father, we know, we know how easy it is to you know, try to connect the dots in some mystical way to justify perhaps what our sinful nature wants to do, God. We pray, God, you help us, God. Help us to be a people who don't swerve to the right and to the left, but instead walk the way of your word. To choose to follow you, God, even when it hurts, even when it's challenging, God. Father, we pray you help us to be a people of faith, a people that see beyond the circumstances of life, even the circumstances of suffering, and to trust that you are in control, God. God, we, we pray that in those moments like what David experiences here, God, where it's so easy to think to ourselves that it's a waste of time to follow you, God. God, we pray that in those moments, God, we can cling to you. 
We pray that in those moments, God, that you can send people into our lives to, to bring truth when we're believing lies. To remind us of your faithfulness, God, even when we can find very little faith in our own hearts, God. And help us, God. Help us to look after one another, God. Help us to not get lost in our own lives and to lose sight of the duty we have to, to, to help one another. Especially in those dark times to fix our eyes on your son, God. Help us to see how that pattern invades every aspect of our lives, God. And to know that in those moments where we seem to be the weakest, we are in fact the strongest. In those moments where it seems as if the world has won, that's really when you are triumphing. God, help us to never forget those things, God. Help us to look at your son and look at the glory he has and to trust in him wholly. Again, we thank you and we praise you. We ask Christ's name. Amen.